Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities, a network of private campuses working to educate students for the public good. Our podcast speaks with insightful experts about current and future issues in higher education and examines the impact of higher ed on society. Thank you for joining us. The college admissions process can be a stressful journey, and with big changes coming to the federal aid application, known as the FAFSA, families might be feeling even more anxious this year. I'm your host, Michelle Apuzio, Senior Director of Programs and Communications at NACU. In this episode, Amy Staffier, Assistant Vice President of Enrollment Student Services and Director of Financial Aid at Simmons University in Boston, will help demystify the financial aid process. With more than two decades of experience in admissions and financial aid, Amy has helped many families navigate the path to college. So let's talk financial aid. Can we start with an overview of the FAFSA in case there are people who haven't started going through the college admissions process yet? Absolutely. So the FAFSA is the free application for federal student aid. I used to always highlight the word free because there had been in the past an organization out there that would charge people to complete the FAFSA, but the Department of Ed put a stop on that. But it's really um, the first step in the process of applying for financial aid uh, at most colleges and universities in the United States. And so all colleges use the FAFSA? So the FAFSA form is used to determine any and all federal financial aid, as well as state need-based financial aid. And many colleges will also use the FAFSA form to determine their institutional need-based financial aid as well. Now, there's also a second form that some colleges use. Is that correct? Yes, the CSS profile form. And there's so much in the news that gets put out about the FAFSA form and, and trying to make that easier. And if you've ever had to fill out both forms, you know that the uh, CSS profile form is actually uh, much more, I don't know if I want to use the word complicated, but more stress-inducing sometimes uh, because it asks for a lot more information. So where the federal FAFSA form is used to determine all federal, state, and then a lot of institutional aid as well, the CSS profile form is used by about 300 institutions across the country, as well as a few uh, scholarship organizations, to determine just their own institutional uh, funding. Uh, and it asks for a lot more information. But even if an institution is using the profile, they're using the FAFSA as well, because they need to use that for any sort of federal aid. Okay, that's helpful. And are these forms filled out every year, or you just do it once? Many people wish it was just once. Um, with the <laughs> FAFSA form, if you are going to be looking to receive aid each year, and whether that's even a parent federal loan, right? Even if the student isn't eligible and the parent wanted to borrow some federal funding, they would need to complete the form each year. I will say with the profile that some schools will use it one year to kind of collect information and then we'll request it um, in the additional years. So as I often say when I do presentations around financial aid, it depends. Every school is different, and that's something that's really important um, to highlight, that it's important to know what that school's policies are. So now as we're heading into the financial aid season for this year, uh, we are anticipating changes to the FAFSA. Can you talk about maybe why the FAFSA is being changed and what those changes might be? 
Yeah, these are the most significant changes um, in about 40 years that have happened. So this is really significant. The goal really was to make it easier for students to be able to apply for financial aid um, by reducing the number of questions on the form. So in the past, there's about maybe 108 questions and the maximum amount of questions in the upcoming year that a student would be asked is about 36 questions. So that's one part of it. Uh, and then a second part is, um, you know, the, there's really one grant available through the P federal government, the Pell Grant. People may have heard of this. Sometimes it comes up in the news. And that's something that's actually increasing um, the number of students who are going to be eligible for this grant funding. And so those are really two main things that are really kind of what put forward and, and why we're going through these significant changes. Are there other changes that you're anticipating? So I think there's a lot of changes that we're anticipating. And I think a lot of people in my profession, um, you know, there's some anxiety because we don't know how everything, you know, will play out because the form hasn't yet been released. Although we've seen draft forms and I'm a bit of a nerd. So when this actually came through, it was December of 2020. And I did sit and go through the formula changes to see, oh, how will some of my students, you know, what will differences look like? So there's some verbiage change. So the output of the FAFSA form produces for the family, for the government, for institutions, something called an EFC, which is an expected family contribution. That is now changing to an SAI, which is a student aid index. It is really kind of the same thing. It's helping to determine what a student is eligible for as far as financial aid funding is concerned. There are some um, just kind of the terminology is a little better because it's an index rather than an expected family contribution. Sometimes that was very confusing to families. So this um, terming it as an index, as well as an EFC could never go below zero. And now the SAI can go to negative 1500, uh, which is very interesting because in, in our world, it was always just could go to zero. Right. Pell Grant eligibility is going to be increasing. So I've done research at my own institution. I've talked with colleagues at other institutions, um, and we're looking at anywhere between, you know, across the country, like institutions may see anywhere from maybe 15 to 20 or maybe 26% increase in students that are eligible for uh, a federal Pell Grant. So that's really um, great, and that's a good thing trying to highlight that. One of the things that, you know, people may have um, kind of heard is that the number in college um, that a family has is no longer being considered in the formula for uh, a student's financial aid eligibility. And and for some of those families, that that's going to be uh, making a difference. Again, I, I've done some research looking at my own population of students because we've had some SAI tools, right, that we can use to, to help look at, here's my population, what would it look like in the next year? And for some families, it's not making a difference or they're getting additional aid and then some families, uh, you know, there might be a change in, in another direction. Who is considered the parent? That's another big change. In the current version of the FAFSA, the parent is who the student lives with more, like within the past 12 months. That was kind of baseline. We are moving uh, in the new FAFSA form that the parent... Um, who completes the form, particularly in a divorce-separated situation. I should have clarified that. It's the parent who provides more support. Financial? Financial support to the student, okay. right? And then additionally, as far as household size, 
um, because we are going into a world where there will be a direct data exchange with the um, IRS and the, the FAFSA form, it'll actually be pulling off from that parent information on their dependents on the tax return. That's how the, the makeup of like the household size is. There is an opportunity for students and parents to adjust that once it is brought in. Um, but that's that's kind of where it will start from. And then also to make it easier, all of the financial questions, all of the income financial questions that are asked have to be able to come off a tax return. So things like untaxed income, one large change is that money that that a parent, say, put into um, a 401k or a 403b for retirement, right, and that shows up on their W-2, that's no longer included and counted as untaxed income because it can't come through the tax return. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and then mm-hmm. as far as assets are concerned, there's a change where it used to be that small businesses determined as like 100 and less employees and, and the parent kind of uh, owns uh, at least 50%, the value wasn't included. Now that is going to be included as an asset. And the same with family farm, that will be um, included as an asset. So um, particularly probably families, you know, in the Midwest and, and such, you know, may see some differences there. I will say that I, I've been through, I'm, I feel like I'm old, right? I'm at that point where I've lived <laughs> through where those actually were included, then they were not included, now they're back being <laughs> included. So we've lived through this before, and we'll kind of navigate through it again. You know, when you're talking about pulling the data directly from tax returns, are they not linked in the current form? Yeah, so there is a change there where in the current form, it, it's called the DRT, which is the uh, data retrieval tool. In that world, the parent, the student, when they get to their income questions are sent off to the IRS, like they're kind of brought out of the FAFSA form. They put some information in and then data comes back in. With the direct data exchange, which is the new way of doing it, data is automatically basically coming right into that FAFSA form. And this is also something that is creating some difference where I, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because the process is very different. Anyone who's completing the FAFSA, so the student, the parent, they have to give consent in order to do this. And if they do not give consent, the student is not eligible for any sort of federal aid. Even if you're not able to somehow use the direct data exchange, you still have to provide that consent. That's going to be a part of the beginning of the process of completing this form. Um, but that consent is allowing that information to be captured and drawn right into the application in a very different way than, than before. I think we said that the form is not quite ready for this year. And normally it becomes ready October 1st. Is that right? Yep. And again, this is one of those changes that I also lived through where I'm at the point where I think things happened, you know, five years ago, but probably way more than that, 15 or (laughs) 10 or 15 years ago, it used to open on January 1st, right? And that was really stressful for people who are applying for financial aid, particularly coming out of high school. And in the Obama administration, they made a great change, which was it opens October 1st and you're using income from two years prior. So it can open and you can complete it and it can be accurate, right? And that will continue to do that except for this one year with implementing this change. Uh, the department finally let us know that 
it wasn't going to be open in October 1st. This was, you know, maybe um, several months ago that they let us know that it's going to open in December. Okay. Now, I hear some people who reporting, oh, it's going to open December 1st. We don't know that. They've not said that. Honestly, most people in my profession are thinking it's going to open late in December um, because mm -hmm. all we know is that in December and that it will be before January 1st because written in the law, it has to be before January 1st. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of things that they're still working on. They've certainly sent out draft FAFSA forms, paper forms. Uh, the second one just came out on the 15th uh, and they're looking for comments. So they're doing work, they're getting it, but it's not going to be until into December, but it's a one year only problem. So just anyone who's, you know, might have a child who's a senior in high school and they're applying, the process is a little bit, might be a little bit later, potentially. In terms of delays, how does that affect students who are applying for early decision or early action? Great question. So with early decision, that's uh, binding or binding decision, right? And of course, there are many students who are kind of wondering, or parents, right? Wondering about, oh, how am I supposed to know? I would say that the vast majority, if not all of the schools that have early decision, utilize the profile form. The profile form, the CSS profile is not being delayed. That will still open in October. So those schools, and I've, I've talked to certainly some colleagues at schools that have ED, are going to be using that form, providing either estimates or, you know, a finalized, you know, financial aid package. Schools that are early action, I think you're really going to see, um, you know, as I'll go back tonight, it depends the scenario, whether they use the profile. I feel like I just heard last week about one school who's potentially creating an internal form for one year only, what so that they can try to get something out uh, in December. But I would venture to guess that a lot of schools aren't going to be able to get things out until January, right? Until after. But again, I, I would highlight that we've lived this process in an old world where the form didn't even open until January and financial aid information came out in February to students. So um, it's something that we can navigate through. And I think the one like downside that I would say of moving the FAFSA form to October, right, was that it actually ended up kind of squishing everything into the falls or so much. Still, you you still yes. can apply later and, and still information can go, the like regular decision, all this. But I think the anxiety just got so pushed um, into this October. And there's so much with just the admission application process. So yes. I'm trying to look at it like, oh, maybe this is a good thing. We like, stretch it out a little bit and provide some space there. You know, we might also remember, because I'm old enough to remember that we used to fill this out with, you know, pencil and paper. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's go back there. <laughs> yeah, that's how I filled out my FAFSA. And somehow I made it into college <laughs> with financial aid. Um, what are questions about the FAFSA in whatever year it is, I have heard from some parents that they don't like filling it out because they don't get need-based aid anyway. Do you encourage everyone to fill out the form? Are there certain populations of people where you say, well, you didn't get any aid freshman year, don't bother? I am typically someone who likes to encourage all people to at least once, you know, complete the form so that you know what you might be eligible for. Again, like it depends statement. There are some schools that may require it to provide any sort of aid. I don't think there are many that say, oh, you have to fill it out for merit, but you never know. 
and to ensure that that I'm being as inclusive as possible to all people, I, I don't like to say, well, if it's this, don't fill it out. And so my encouragement is, and particularly with the FAFSA, where it's becoming so much shorter, it's becoming less burdensome to complete it and at least complete it in one year. Now, with the change in the number in college, right? So you might say to someone, uh, well, I already completed it. Like, why complete it again? Well, potentially, if there's been a change, you know, that someone going off to school and that could have changed your financial aid eligibility. I would still say that, you know, we as professional financial aid administrators have an ability to use something called professional judgment. So this has been written into um, the federal law around awarding financial aid. We can't, for groups of students, just say, oh, everyone who has two in college, we can use professional judgment and adjust the SAI or data points to get to an SAI. But in certain special circumstances, we certainly can make adjustments. Or let's say, I mean, you know, God forbid someone has something tragic happen, you know, in their household. Having that financial, you can still usually apply, but having something, an application already in might make it easier to then reach out to the school and say, you know, we've had a, a significant job loss or a death in the family or something like that. And then additionally, if you want your child to potentially, you know, be helping in that cost and might want to take on, you know, a, a small amount of a student loan debt, or as a parent, you might want to borrow a federal loan. That's another reason why completing the form um, will be necessary. You know, can we go back to the SAI conversation in terms of now it can be negative? How would that happen? Yeah. So um, the negative can in some ways be misleading because you think, oh, well, I'm going to get kind of more. But there are certainly, you know, at a negative SAI, it's like an automatic maximum Pell Grant that you're going to get. Um, but then as far as additional funding, right, say from an institution, someone who, who kind of is in that lowest income is typically getting additional need-based funds from an institution. And I would highlight the Pell Grant, the maximum Pell Grant is somewhere just almost at $7,000. I always think that's a good thing to kind of level set people that typically institutions, right, are also providing a significant amount of funding to um, students and families, particularly if they are, say, a negative 1500 SAI. But we also are have particular rules um, as far as how much funds we can provide to a student, and they can't exceed their cost of attendance. So in the situation of a negative SAI, which to get to someone's financial aid eligibility, I wish I, I wish you we weren't in a podcast, yeah. I had a whiteboard, <laughs> but you take a student's cost of attendance, subtract the SAI, right? And that's their financial aid eligibility, which means automatically their eligibility is more in a negative situation than their cost of attendance, but we cannot have funding that exceeds that cost of attendance. So oh. some institutions may use this negative um, SAI as kind of a benchmark of distinguishing like a zero, right, from this someone who's even more needy. And maybe that's a, a population an institution might target with particular funds, right? Um, and so it'll be interesting. Like special to see. scholarships. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that plays out because we haven't had to navigate in a negative world yet. Interesting. You know, a lot of this sounds like it could be very stressful for families and students. What are you hearing when you go out and give presentations? And what messages are you giving to families? So my main message is 
remain calm, right? <laughs> I know it's not easy necessarily to do that, but people like myself, people who work in financial aid, counseling staff at high schools, we're, we're here to help you navigate through. And at the end of the day, all of the data that I've seen in looking at my own student population is most students are going to potentially receive a little bit more in aid or stay about the same. And yes, there'll be a little bit that, you know, it might change in a different direction. But institutions are not looking to kind of strip money away from students and families. We're going to do our best to try to even things out um, and help students just as we have in the past. Um, so providing that message, as well as what I always say in presentations is, reach out, talk to the financial aid office, right? After you say receive your financial aid package, ask if there are specific unusual circumstances, right? Within your own family. Again, a job loss, when we talk about two years past income, job loss, a change, significant medical expenses, right? Those are things you can't put into the form, but you can talk to us. We can use professional judgment. And again, every school is different if, if they're able to provide more. But if you don't ask, you'll never know. And I always say the, the worst that, you know, uh, an institution can say is no, but the best they may be able to say is, yeah, actually, we're able to make an adjustment. So, you know, really try to focus also on supporting your child through that admission process, right? And, and trying to, you know, protect them a bit from that stress and anxiety of, of the financial side. I always suggest, you know, having a conversation as well, just around finances. I know it can be tough, but it's even tougher when we get to May, right? That May mm -hmm. 1st, trying to make a decision. If you then say, actually, this isn't going to work, you know, financially for our family. Right. So <laughs> it's also trying to have some of those conversations, but also just trying to say, you know what? There are resources out there that we can utilize. And and the best is, you know, that direct communication with, um, you know, a financial aid office at institution. Amy, this has been Fantastic. Um, I feel so much better about the upcoming FAFSA process. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that anyone listening to this does also. Anything else to share about financial aid? I mean, I would say not just to read the headlines, right? Because I do feel like over the past several months, right, there's been a lot of these headlines that, you know, removing the number in college, it's stripping away, you know, and if you just read those, that's where your anxiety is going to get kind of ratcheted up. So, Right. Listening to people who kind of work in the fields. I know here in the state of Massachusetts, um, we have a great resource in MISA, which is a nonprofit state authority. Um, and they do a lot to help our counseling staff in high schools and providing information. And they have a lot of presentations on their website around, you know, financial aid 101, um, the CSS profile in that form, the FAFSA. I'm set to do a presentation, a deep dive into the FAFSA on December 6th. It's like, I hope there's more. You know, we, we get the finalized <laughs> version of the form, but tap into some of those resources as well as the financial aid office. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Amy. Appreciate it. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to Connect, Collaborate, Champion. We want to give a special thank you to our producer, George Drake Jr. To learn more about the NACU campuses, visit nacu.edu.